Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day 14. Today we will be reading Book 4, chapters 15 and 16 in the Ascension edition of the book. If you'd like to hear some of our conversations on other subjects, follow up with us and three of our brother priests on the podcast Godsplaining. There you'll find weekly episodes on a variety of Catholic themes with occasional guests, scriptural meditations, and special series. You can find Godsplaining with any podcast app on YouTube and at godsplaining.org. Before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. So today, St. Augustine, who usually likes to talk about Socrates and Plato, here he's going to talk a little bit about Aristotle. Aristotle wrote a number of texts about logic, and uh, one of the first of those texts is called the Categories. And the basic point of the Categories is to carve up reality according as reality is. So the idea is that you want to carve reality at the joints. And so he says, in reality, we have substances which are the types of things like rocks and trees and uh, bears. And then on the other hand, you have accidents, which are like the properties or the attributes of those aforementioned substances. So again, (laughs) as has been the case with the last two episodes, it's a little bit technical. So if it's not something you're familiar with, don't get too bogged down by the details, but know that he's trying to make sense of reality with the help of a wise philosopher and that it's an occasion for the continuation of the story. So let's get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 15. But I did not yet see that this weighty matter depends upon your art, you who are omnipotent and who alone work wonders, see Psalm 72.18. And my mind considered all sorts of bodily form. I defined and distinguished the beautiful from the fitting by saying that something is the former when it is beautiful in itself, whereas it is said to be fitting in relation to something else. I supported this claim by appealing to bodily examples. And so I turned to the nature of the mind, but the truth was hidden from me due to the false idea I had concerning spiritual realities. Nonetheless, the force of the truth did of itself flash into my eyes, and I turned away my panting soul from bodiless substances to lines, colors, and bulky magnitudes. And since I could not perceive these in the mind, I thought I could not see my mind. And since in virtue I loved peace and in vice I abhorred discord, I observed unity in the former and a kind of division in the latter. And I thought that the rational soul, the nature of truth, and that of the chief good all consisted in such unity. However, in division, I miserably imagined there to be some unknown substance of a rational life and the nature of the greatest evil, which would not only be a substance, but even also a real form of life, though one that was not derived from you, O my God, from whom all things come. 
And I called the first a monad, as though it were a mind that were sexless, and the latter a dyad, akin to anger and cruel deeds and lust and shameful ones. But I had no idea what I was talking about, for I had not yet known or learned that evil is not a substance, nor that our own mind is not the highest and unchangeable good. For as violent deeds take place if the soul's emotion, giving rise to vehement action, is corrupted, stirring itself up with insolence and disorder, and lusts arise when the soul's affection for drinking and carnal pleasures is ungoverned, so too errors and false opinions defile life if the rational mind is itself corrupted, as it was when then in me. I did not know that it must be enlightened by another light, for it must partake in the truth, but it is not itself the very nature of truth. For you shall light my candle, O Lord my God, who illuminates my darkness. See Psalm 1828. And from your fullness we have all received. For you are the true light that enlightens every man that comes into the world. See John 1, 9, 16. For in you, quote, there is no variation nor shadow due to change. James 1, 17. But I pressed on toward you, all the while being thrust from you, so that I might taste death, for you resist the proud. See 1 Peter 5, 5 and James 4, 6. For what could be prouder than what I, in my strange madness, held, namely, that I by my very nature was the same as what you are? For whereas I was the one subject to change, and this was so clear a fact for me to see, for my very desire to be wise was nothing other than the desire to go from being worse to being better, I nonetheless chose to imagine that you are subject to change, rather than to imagine that I myself was not what you are. Therefore, I was pushed back by you, and you resisted my vain stubbornness. Thus, I continued to imagine that spiritual realities had a bodily form, and I myself, being a being made up of flesh, nonetheless accused the flesh with being evil. And I, a wind that passes and does not return, see Psalm 78, 39, I did not return to you, but instead passed from one thing to the next, all of which had no being, whether in you, in me, or in my body. Nor were they created for me by your truth. No, in my vanity, I fashioned them from bodily fantasy. And I would ask your faithful little ones, my fellow citizens, from whom, unbeknownst to me, I was exiled, foolish and tedious questions such as, Why then does the soul which God created fall into error? But I did not wish for them to ask me, Why then does God fall into error? And I maintained that your unchangeable substance fell into such error through constraint, for I did not want to confess that my own changeable substance had gone astray by my own will, and now, as a punishment, suffered error. When I wrote these volumes, I was either 26 or 27 years old, filled with bodily fictions, which buzzed within the ears of my heart, which I turned, O sweet truth, to your inward melody, meditating on the beautiful and the fitting, longing to stand and hearken to you, and to rejoice with great joy at the bridegroom's voice. See John 3.29. But I could not do so, for the very voices of my own errors hurtled me onward, and through the weight of my own pride I was sinking down into the depths of a great pit. For you did not make me hear joy and gladness, nor did my unhumbled bones yet exult. See Psalm 51.8. 16. And what use was it for me, when I was scarcely more than twenty years of age, to read and understand all in my own Aristotle's categories? I even treated the very name of the work as though it were something great and divine whenever my master of rhetoric in Carthage, and others who were judged to be learned, spoke it with lips that dripped with pride. And when I discussed it with others who said that they barely could understand it even when excellent tutors helped them, both by way of oral exposition and diagrammatic explanations upon the sand, I saw that they could not tell me anything more about the work than what I learned by reading it on my own. 
The book spoke to me very clearly about substances such as man and also about the various realities that are found in substances. The figure or qualities a man might have, what his height and stature might be, what relations he might have, such as brotherhood, where he is placed, when he was born, whether he sits or stands, whether he happens to be wearing anything, or whether he is doing some activity or undergoing the activity of some other being. Thus, it spoke about these nine categories of accidents with the countless things that might be classed within them, including the examples given above, as well as about the chief category, substance. How did all of this help me, given how it even served to hinder my progress? When, imagining that all realities were to be classed among those ten categories, I strove thus to understand even you, O oh my God, and your wonderful and unchanging unity, as though you yourself were the subject in which were found your greatness, or beauty, as is the case in bodily beings. But this is not true, for you yourself are your very greatness and beauty. A body, by contrast, is not great or fair precisely because it is a body, for even if it were less great or fair, it would nonetheless remain a body. But what I thought about you was not truth, but falsehood, fashioning for myself fictions in my misery, not the realities of your blessedness. For you commanded, and within me the earth brought forth thorns and thistles, and I was forced to eat my bread with sweat upon my brow. See Genesis 3, 18-19. And what profit did I draw from all the books of the so-called liberal arts when I read and understood them by myself, I, the vile slave of vile affections? But I delighted in them, all the while not knowing the source of whatever truth happened to be contained in them, for I had my back to the light and my face toward what was being illuminated by it. Thus, my face, by which I looked upon and discerned these things which were thus illuminated, was not itself illuminated. By myself, and without much difficulty or any instructor, I understood whatever was written, whether about rhetoric or logic, geometry, music, or arithmetic. This you know, O Lord my God, for swiftness in understanding and shrewd discernment are gifts from you. Yet I did not make any sacrifice back to you from this gift that you had given me. Therefore, it did not serve to build me up, but rather served for my perdition, for I went about wishing to keep my inheritance for myself. And I did not devote my strength to you, but instead wandered far from you into a distant land to spend it there on harlotry. See Luke 15, 11 through 32. What profit was there for me in such excellence when it was not employed in good uses? For I did not feel that those arts were attained with great difficulty, even by those who were studious and talented, until I attempted to explain these subjects to just those sorts of people, when I saw that the most excellent students were those who were not altogether slow in understanding what I explained to them. But how was this evade to me when I still imagined that you, O Lord God, the truth, were a vast and bright body, of which I was but a fragment? Oh, how great the perversity! But that was what I was at the time. Nor am I embarrassed to confess your mercies toward me, O my God, and to call upon you, I who was not then embarrassed to profess such blasphemies to other men and to bark my words against you. What profit was this mind which so nimbly learned these sciences and worked through such difficult tomes, all without aid from human instruction, all the while, however, with such sacrilegious shamelessness, falling into such foul error regarding the very doctrine of piety? Or how was the slower wit of your little ones any sort of hindrance? For they did not depart from you, thus remaining within the nest of your church like fledglings that are securely fed, nourishing the wings of charity upon the food of sound faith. O Lord, let us be filled with hope under the shadow of your wings. See Psalm 17, 8. And there, protect us and bear us aloft. You will carry us when we are small, and even unto old age and gray hair you will bear us. See Isaiah 46, 4. 
For when you are our strength, then truly are we strong. But when we rely on our own strength, then our strength is nothing more than mere weakness. Our good forever lives with you, and when we turn away from it, we ourselves are overthrown. Let us now return, O Lord, so that we may not thus be overthrown, for it is with you that our good lives, without any decay, a good which is none other than you. And so too we need not fear that there would be nowhere for us to return to, for we were the ones who fell from it. And while we were far abroad, no collapse was suffered by our mansion, which is your very eternity. Okay, so we didn't make too much mention of it, or even any mention of it, I think, in the last episode. But St. Augustine is talking about a work that he composed at this stage in his life, which is about the beautiful and the fitting. And so he's trying to identify objective elements about beauty and what distinguishes it from, you know, unbeauty or non-beauty or ugly <laughs> ugliness. Okay, there, there's the word. Cheers, I arrived at it. Um, <laughs> Okay, so in the course of this conversation, we, we gather that St. Augustine is smart and that he knows it <laughs> and that he's very, you know, able when it comes to philosophical theories, whether they be Platonic or Aristotelian, which would be two of your main options in the ancient world. Um, but he's still taking all of this philosophy, all of this learning, and he's assimilating it to his Manichaean notions of the world. So he's still kind of trying to reconcile it with his heresy. So you can be plenty smart, but still have the wrong basic notions about what is or who is at the heart of, of your human experience. So um, yeah, Father Jacob Bertrand, there are a lot of smart people in the world. Not all of those smart people have the basic facts of, you know, like human life or divine life down. How might we uh, take this as an opportunity for our own growth? There's, I remember, I don't know if you remember, I'm sure you do. Uh, I remember someone at some point in our formation saying that, you know, the sort of cardinal sin of the Dominican is, is pride for a Dominican friar because for a number of reasons, but because Dominicans tend to be intellectually inclined. Um, that's a nice way to say it or nerds is perhaps <laughs> a more appropriate way to say it, but also nerds who like to talk because we're the order of preachers. So nerds who like to get up in front of people and the, the sort of beauty of the order of preachers is that you preach the gospel, but sometimes and often, you know, you like to people to hear you and think that you're smart and those sort of things. So we certainly see that, uh, you know, I, at a personal level and being a bit vulnerable can relate to St. Augustine. And, you know, he talks about how, what, as he becomes a good orator and or a good, um, good at rhetoric or rhetorician, is that the word? I think you'd say rhetor or rhetorician. I think there they both go. work. He talks about his own sort of taking pride in, in that, even though as a maniche belonging to the sect for almost a decade of his life, what he was talking about was wrong. And we could see this alive in our own lives when, you know, when we've been mistaken or observing others. So there's, there's a real danger to sort of the intellectual life or sort of just amassing knowledge for knowledge's sake without engagement with the truth, I think. And we, yeah, we do that in our own lives. We do that. We see other people do that. We see St. Augustine talking about that here. You know, he's reading these great philosophers who, what, by also a point worth making, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas takes up Aristotle centuries later and appropriately applies him, you know, but here at this time in his life, St. Augustine misappropriates Aristotle. So it's just, I think, a good cautionary kind of tale that just because you have a big intellect doesn't mean that it's, it's always going super well in its application. Yeah, and, and I think, too, when we 
you know, when we talk about intelligence in these terms, it might be a temptation to say, oh, intelligence is a stumbling block to holiness, which is not the case. It's not a stumbling block to holiness because we know, and we repeat this often, we're made to the image and likeness of God. So we have a mind with which to know and a heart with which to love. And we can rise to the heights of our human dignity in knowing God with his own knowledge of himself and in loving God with his own love of himself. And so, you know, like this this image of God is not just a static feature of our lives, it's a dynamic feature. And it's meant to, to kind of like string the bow and launch the arrow of our human spirit towards the most high God. Uh, but that being said, insofar as it's the highest of our powers, the most exalted, the most elevated, it's also going to be the occasion for, for the greatest pride, because it's probably going to be the thing that we esteem to be our own or our personal possession or whatever, the most apt expression of our excellence. But if we, if we take that away from God's gift, or if we fail to recognize it as God's gift, then it'll create problems in our life, which is, I think, what we're seeing here with St. Augustine as he candidly admits and as he, you know, penitently places before the Lord's feet. So it's not so much to be said that, you know, intelligence is a stumbling block or intelligence is a hurdle to be overcome as intelligence is a gift from God that we can use well or ill. So gathering some of the principles from the conversation and from St. Augustine's testimony, what might be ways in which we can use our intelligence well? Yeah, there's, I think in general, um, using our intelligence for encounters with the truth is, you know, first and foremost, the way we use our intelligence well of, of trying to pursue what is good, true, and beautiful, um, and trying to know that with it's in my, in my sort of thought on this, it's kind of the question that keeps coming up is, is like, to what end? Why am I trying to know this? Why am I studying this? Why am I learning about this? Is it just a weird kind of curiosity? Is it to prove myself better than others? Or is it actually to know the truth about something, the truth about the world in which we live, the truth about this part of the world in which we live? Um, and that that's a big, I think, check, which is a, a good check. You know, when you engage in something, what's the end? What's the purpose? So yeah, there too. And I think the dose of humility is always recognizing that, yeah, I could know a lot or I could know a little, but I don't know at all. And, and that's, I think that's a big piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And I think too, you also see in St. Augustine's life that these types of speculative problems, that's to say, understanding the nature of God and whether God is immaterial or material, which is a current consideration at this stage of his life, they're also related to practical problems. That's to say, like, if you're living dissolutely or perversely, it's going to create all kinds of problems for your understanding of God and reality or God in the world. And so we'll say it often in the Christian life that all of the virtues are interconnected. So he who has one virtue has them all. But in a certain sense, if you have one vice, you also kind of have them all. Insofar as a, as a blind spot in the spiritual life is going to make it such that you lose your perspective. And so St. Augustine is very attached, obviously, to pleasures of the flesh. He's also very attached to worldly honors, to rank, esteem, you know, fame, glory, etc. And that 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 introduces a kind of problem into the whole system so that he's not firing on all cylinders. He's, he's, he's performing suboptimally, to speak in kind of mechanical terms. And so I think, too, that also gives us encouragement because in our simple efforts to be temperate, for instance, to, to like be careful about the way that we eat and drink and, you know, for married persons engage in sexual intercourse, for those not married, you know, abstain from sexual intercourse and from, from sexual sins in a way that could throw us for a loop, you know, all those, those small efforts, they're going to redound to a, a clearer vision 
of God's, you know, God's gift and uh, a clearer, or what, what should I say, a more wholehearted reception of it and appropriation of it. So I think, you know, keeping in mind the fact that, you know, speculative issues and practical issues are, are interrelated and that sometimes the simplest way to come to knowledge of the truth is, is to fast or to give alms or to pray the rosary, you know, so those things aren't just, you know, they're not just simple things. They're very, very exalted things insofar as they, they give unto exalted heights. All right, so just turning then to a final point, I just want to think a little bit about St. Augustine's progressive illumination. He uses an image here that almost sounds like Plato's allegory of the cave, where he says uh, it's like the light's at his back, and he's like looking at, not shadows, he doesn't say that, but that he, he doesn't quite see, or it hasn't yet quite come into focus. So I don't know, it's, I mean, like illumination or enlightenment is a way that we often speak of progress or maturation. Final thoughts about St. Augustine's progressive coming to the light? Well, I mean, obviously Christ is the light, you know, so there's no, where he's, it's not just stepping out as I'm sure all of you know, I don't need to explain this. It's not just stepping from like a lightly dimmed or lightly lit room into a very bright room. There we go. English thoughts coming together, stepping into the light myself, but rather stepping into the light of Christ, you know, the, the light that sheds clearness, truth um, on the mind. One of the effects of, of sin is, is a sort of dampened or darkened intellect. Like we, we understand the reality of sin, that it, that it actually makes us our appreciation and appropriation of the truth less real, less intense. We, do, we don't see things clearly. And that's one of the movements of God's grace, of his light in our lives, is to, is to shine on our minds, to shine on our understanding of things such that we, you know, guided by the gifts of the Holy Spirit too, that we might see things as they truly are. And we could see this at play in St. Augustine's life as, as he enters more and more into the light of Christ, he begins to see the reality of his errors in the Manichaean sect and his, and his promiscuous and lustful ways of living, that he sees how this goes wrong. So when he talks about the light, this is, you know, obviously our minds go to Christ, who is the light, the rising sun, the, all of these things. Boom. All right. Well, know that certainly that's our that's our prayer for you, that in coming to encounter the Lord more richly through accompanying this saint, St. Augustine, through his own spiritual conversion, that we, you know, we're stepping into the light as we go from strength to strength uh, in the reception of God's grace and virtue, which he makes available in his tradition, which he makes available in his saints. So yeah, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we will catch you next time on Catholic Classics. <laughs>